This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You're listening to Away With Words. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Recently, a friend asked me for a recommendation. He wanted to know what kind of dictionary to buy for his son, who's a college freshman. And he asked me, what's the best dictionary for my son to keep on his desk? And, you know, the funny thing is that I hesitated for a second, and he said, well, what dictionary do you keep on your desk? And I had to think for a second and then admit, I don't have any dictionary on my desk. <laughs> I have I have sort of a, a vague muscle memory of opening a heavy dictionary on my desk mm-hmm. and turning the pages or pulling a big one down off the shelf. But, Grant, I really don't do that anymore. I don't have a dictionary on my I, desk. I guarantee you his son doesn't have a dictionary on his desk either and, and won't, even if his father buys it. He's like you and me and most people these days who have a reason to call on a dictionary every day. We go online, don't right. we? Right. But I had to explain that if I want to look up a word, I go to onelook.com and uh, look at the dictionaries there, the American Heritage or maybe Merriam-Webster. Or I go to the Oxford English Dictionary online. But, of course, mm-hmm. that costs a lot of money for That's a lot right. of people. So I was sort of at a loss for what to tell him. What would you have said? Well, you're headed for the territory that requires some kind of teasing out and explaining, kind of like setting up your criteria. He, he's talking about a college student here. The father's willing to spend some money, right? And mm-hmm. so he could go ahead and buy the paper dictionary. Sometimes they come with CD-ROMs, which is kind of close to online. Yeah. But really, I would actually recommend spending the money to get the kid access to an online dictionary that's not free because they're better. For example, Merriam-Webster's Unabridged, you could, yes. buy, you could buy it, but it's also online, relatively recently updated. I think it's 2002, 2003. It's something like $30 a yeah, year. it's not much. And it's a better dictionary than Merriam-Webster's Collegiate. It has etymologies, for example. It has more meanings to words, more senses, more information, just more notes in general. It's a great dictionary. But if you do want print... And I know you're out there, right? Three of you? Four of you, maybe? <laughs> Both of you. <laughs> you know the one that I usually recommend, right, Martha? Yes. It's the two-volume, shorter Oxford English Dictionary. It can be had for about $110, uh, Amazon.com and a few other places. It's not the full Oxford English Dictionary. They basically cut out most of the citations and a lot of the nonce words, that is, words that were used once ever, you know, Chaucer used it once, so they decided to record it. But it's a great dictionary. It's very complete. The sixth edition is very Americanized. It's nice to look at. It's easy to read. It's a, it's a, it's a great print dictionary. And again, if you're willing to spend the money, it's the one to have. If you're not willing to spend more than $100 on a dictionary, then I would recommend the Merriam-Webster's Collegiate. This is one that's going to work for most of your puzzling and most of your gaming. It's going to work for any kind of ordinary book that you're reading. But if you're reading Tolkien or, or Dorothy Dunnett, you got to have a better dictionary, you know, because they have very highly specialized vocabulary that just the collegiate dictionary is just not going to be complete enough to, to do. Yeah. Well, if you have a question about dictionaries or language or buzzwords or grammar or word origins or slang, dial us up. The number is 1-877-929-9673. That's 1-877-WAYWORD. Or shoot us an email. The address is words at waywardradio.org. Hi, you have a way with words. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, doing well. Who's this? This is Jeremy Greenberg, and I am calling from San Diego, California. Well, welcome to the program, Jeremy. What's on your mind? Uh, the word poosley is on my mind. Um, my in-laws... <laughs> Wait a second. We have a seven-second dumper on this line. <laughs> the way they use it is to mean that they don't feel well. Never heard of it. Can't find it in a dictionary. They swear it's a real word. These are your in-laws, did you say? Yeah, they're of Welsh stock, Uh huh. and they say they feel poosley, and I think it's impossible to feel poosley because it's not a thing. <laughs> My wife says it, which is the main reason why I'm interested in potentially proving her wrong, uh-huh. and, um, yes. and my mother-in-law says it. And truthfully, I just want to know, is it a word? Oh. Have you confronted them about this? I mean, I is have, this a, is this a thing between you? It is a word. Okay, and can they cite other people having said this word? They have not given me any instances of uh, other people saying it, but they swear it's a word. 
So, Jeremy, are there degrees of poosley? I mean, if you push back from Thanksgiving dinner and you're really full, do you say, oh, I'm poosley? Or is it more when you were in bed with a fever? Or I think it's the in bed with a fever. Uh, they say that poosley is actually a combination of poor and queasy. So, Jeremy, your theory is that this must be something that your family members made up. I think my in-laws made it up, yes. Uh-huh. But it may have been so long ago that it's just become a word. I see. Hmm. I hope you don't have very much on the line, Jeremy. No, no, just uh, just wanting to know the truth more than anything. Uh, the truth is, how shall I put this plainly? You're wrong. I'm wrong? I'm You're wrong, yes. It is indeed a word. It is a word. It is a word. And it, and it has a variety of spellings and a variety of uh, different places that I've seen it. I can give you 20 or 30 different discrete users of it online. It's not a common word. It's not in any dictionary that I've checked. And I don't know that you'll ever get anybody to agree on exactly where it comes from. But there are many people who use it. They spell it P-O-O-S-L-E-Y, P-O-O-Z-L-E-Y, P-O-O-Z-L-Y, P, uh, even without the L, P-O-O-Z-Y. Well, they're going to be uh, delighted. And and you'll find it using exactly in the way that you described it. If you feel poozy or poozly, and it does seem to be how it's pronounced, well, that it means makes me feel you poozy. feel poorly. And I'd never heard the poorly plus queasy derivation. Mm-hmm. I tend to doubt it, but it really okay. does encapsulate the exact meaning. It's a it's a combination of just feeling ill plus maybe a little nauseated. Wow. Jeremy, you're saying that this is making you feel poosly? This answer has made me feel quite poosly. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, in the United States, it's not common at all. But when I do see it, it tends to appear in New England, like Maine and and, and Vermont. Yeah. And I don't know about any Welsh descendancy there. And I don't Mm -hmm. know anything about this word coming from Welsh. But that is a a trail of evidence that I'm going to follow just, just to see if I can figure this out. Wow. Well, Jeremy, we're glad you called. I'm not sure (laughs) you're glad you called. (laughs) No, but thanks for sharing this word with us in any case. And I bet a lot of our listeners will be delighted to find that, hey, I know that word. My granny used that. Or they're going to start using it. Oh, my God. It's going to be a poozy word. Yeah, I'll start using it. I mean, really, it's just fun. And and I'm glad to know it's a real word. Thank you for calling, Jeremy. My pleasure. Thank you. All All right. right, Bye-bye. Bye. What's really interesting from a lexical standpoint, the wide variety of spellings indicate that this word is transmitted largely orally, orally in right. English. Yeah. So that means it's no wonder this poor man who is about to be pummeled by all of his in-laws, they're going to get him back. <laughs> this poor man, is. there's no wonder that he hasn't encountered it before because it's, if it's transmitted orally, that means it's, it's pretty rare. Poor Jeremy. So. Bring to us your mysteries. The number to call is one 929 or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, my name is Katie, and I'm calling from Fort Worth, Texas. Oh, okay. Welcome, right. Katie. Thank you. So my mom's family is all from Texas, and we have this cake that everyone makes all the time, holidays, birthdays, whatever, and it's called the Chocolate Sheath Cake, and it's spelled S-H-E-A-T-H. And we never thought anything of it. We just always called it the sheath cake. And then my sister is engaged to a guy who's a chef. And he one day heard us talking about it or we made it. And he said, I've never heard of a sheath cake. I think you guys are mispronouncing sheet cake, S-H-E-E-T. Uh-oh, and I smell trouble. So we have, uh, you know, they've kind of been arguing about it, you know, playfully and he, as far as I know, maintains that there's no such thing as a sheet cake. So my mom did some digging, found out it came. She received the recipe as a wedding gift. And so it came from a cousin who got it from a cafeteria lady at a high school in the 60s. And we're not sure where it came from other than that. <laughs> and so now we're starting to wonder, is it really sheet cake or is sheet cake something real that, you know, <laughs> we're actually spelling right? Uh-huh. The argument is S-H-E-A-T-H versus S-H-E-E-T. Correct. Cake. What kind of cake are we talking about here? It's a chocolate cake. I mean, it is a sheet cake. It's just a you know single layer you know, made in like a 9 by 13 pan. And it's a chocolate cake, but it has a lot of spices in it, primarily like cinnamon. Pretty thin, though, right? Usually just a couple inches high. It doesn't rise much, kind yeah, of like a brownie no. or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's just like a regular cake that, you know, just a regular sheet cake, but it's has a lot of cinnamon and it's made with buttermilk. You would maintain that sheath, S-H-E-A-T-H, is the name of the cake, and he says no. That's correct. 
Mm-hmm. One of my colleagues, uh, Barry Popick, lives in Austin, Texas now. He has noticed and recorded some evidence that shows that sheath cake is particularly more common as the way to describe this in Texas than it is anywhere else. I mean, it does occur in the South and Southwest in general. But okay. sheath, S-H-E-A-T-H, does t- appear to be a little bit of a regionalism for okay. sheet. They are the same cake as far as I can tell. And okay. there's there's something happening here with that pronunciation. Uh, Barry Popek's theory, I think, is pretty sound. His theory is that with a particular Texas accent, the word sheet can sound like the S word. And so perhaps as a way of avoidance, which is a well-chronicled mm-hmm. way that language changes. People and a good might idea ha- with chocolate cake. People might have <laughs> decided maybe the word was really sheath. Because uh, there's nothing sheath-like happening here. Like the, yeah. the cake isn't covering anything, but, I mean, it's not enclosing or enveloping anything like, a, say, a sheath yeah. of a sword would, right? Yeah. A sheath of a knife. No, no. So th- there's something happening. The sheath is the newer form. It dates to about the 1950s. So it's got a long history. If nothing else, that gives you a little bit of a weight in favor of using sheath. But sheet cake is the older, more common, and more well-established form. Okay. But, again, as a regionalism, I think it's 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 about as harmless as they come. Mm-hmm. So, in summary, Katie, you're fine with sheath cake. It might not be the oldest form or the most formal form or the one used everywhere by more people, but it's totally fine. Continue sure. happily. Absolutely. And Thank you very much. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for calling. Thanks a lot, you guys. B- okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Oh, yum. Mm, Do we love food, food calls? calls. <laughs> we love food calls. <laughs> If you've got a question about food, and if you want to send us some, give us a call, one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three, or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. If you think spelling doesn't matter, think again. A recent telephone survey of 100 senior Canadian executives showed that more than a fifth of them said one single typo on a resume or a cover letter could cost a potential employee that job. And 28% of them said that two mistakes would kill that applicant's chances. And they listed in the report on this uh, survey some of the common mistakes. For example, dear sir or madman. (laughs) (laughs) I'm attacking my resume for you to review. (laughs) Following is a grief overview of my skills. Oh, terrible. And finally, have a keen eye for derail. Oh, no. <laughs> I can see this happening. I live in dread of of doing that kind of thing. But, of course, the moral of the story is, yes, run spell check, but do not rely on it. Well, if you've got tricks for keeping your spelling intact so that you can get the job, send us an email to words at waywardradio.org. Puzzle, puzzle, toil, and trouble. It's our word quiz and more of your calls next on Away With Words. Hey, we've got something special for those of you who love our show but could do without the ads. That's right. Imagine Away With Words, the same engaging conversations, the same deep dives into language without advertising interruptions. We're talking about our ad-free podcast feed. It's sleek, clean, and it's just for our supporters. It's at waywardradio.org slash ad-free. It's inexpensive, easy to sign up for, and works with all major podcast apps like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's an affordable way to support the show and get a seamless listening experience. And if you're feeling generous, why not give a subscription to another Away With Words fan? That's waywardradio.org slash adfree. Sign up today. Your support means the world. waywardradio.org slash adfree. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. And we are joined by our lovely and talented Mr. Quiz, 
Greg Pliska. <laughs> Lovely. And t- oh, gorgeous. Just fabulous. Oh, what a stunning gown he's got on today as he comes up the carpet. <laughs> nice shoes. Uh, I don't know what to say after that introduction. The lovely and talented. Yeah, I do feel like I'm at the Oscars. Do you have a quiz there somewhere? No, let's just make jokes about my physique all day. Uh, yes, I do. Today's puzzle comes straight from the National Puzzlers League monthly publication called The Enigma. Where can we find that? Well, you can find out all about it's the an National enigma. Puzzlers League at uh, www.puzzlers.org. In The Enigma, we have a type of verse puzzle that we call a flat. And today's examples all involve letter changes. Each short verse that I'll read you clues two words, and each word is only one letter different from the other, like the words cough and rough, where you change the C to an R. Okay. Except mine will be harder than that. Uh-oh. Mm. Uh, all you have to do is fill in the blanks so that the verse makes sense. For example, I never count blank when I'm going to blank. That method does not work for me. Right around fives when I burst into hives. I'm allergic to wool, don't you see? So it's sheep and oh. sleep. I never count sheep when I'm going to sleep. Ah, okay, nice. okay. It's one letter to the other. We can do this, nice. right, Mark? Yeah, oh, yeah. And these are all in rhyme? These are all little verse puzzles. Excellent. All right. And remember, you're changing just one letter in each word. Okay. All right. Here we go. I'm such a spaz. I can't play jazz. Not Miles, Bird, or Ellington. With take the blank, I fight and blank, like Napoleon facing Wellington. So, so take a, train the a train and attain. Attain. No. No. So what's that what second blank? I fight and blank. With take strain. strain. Yeah, strain. <laughs> With take the a train, I fight and strain, like Napoleon facing Wellington. Nice. Wellington and Ellington. Very nice. Um, Holy orthodonture, Robin cried, beholding Joker's blank and leering rictus. We've tracked you to your blank, but now inside, the joke's on us. It seems, you fiend, you've tricked us. So it's not leer and leer because it's two letters. That's correct. It's uh, seven-letter words. Can we hear it one more time? Sure. Holy orthodonture. Robin cried, beholding Joker's blank and leering rictus. We've tracked you to your blank, but now inside, the joke's on us. It seems, you fiend, you've tricked us. Wow. Where have they tracked Joker to? Where would you track any villain to? His lair. His hideout. His hideout. And Robin cries out, beholding Joker's blank and leering rictus. Hideous. Oh, that's yeah. brilliant. Ah, very nice. Hideous and hideout. That's kind of a classic letter change example. Oh, no it, kidding. Yeah. It's Different so... Amateurs over here. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great pair of words. The change of the letter changes the whole construction of the word. Right? Well, mm-hmm. I was all excited about rictus and trictus. I think that's great. I, uh, rictus is one of my favorite words. I, I love that word. It's, it's on word. my website. Um, don't stress what you're wearing for a radio airing. Since no one can see, they don't care that the shirt worn by Barrett's the color of carrots or that blank has a blank in her hair. <laughs> Barnett has a barrette in her Yes, hair. exactly. Oh, very nice. And I have to say, I don't really know if she has a barrette in her hair, but I can imagine it. But Grant's shirt is certainly the color of carrots. So I should tell you up front, in the, in the next one, you've got one two-word phrase and one, uh, and one word. So the two answers was a word and one is a two-word phrase. Okay. When Mama calls blank, Papa runs to her flank to make sure there's enough in the pot. She makes a great bisque, but there's always the risk that a blank will be all that she's got. Wow. One more time, please. When Mama calls blank, Papa runs to her flank to make sure there's enough in the pot. She makes a great bisque, but there's always the risk that a blank will be all that she's got. Okay, it's not dinner and winter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, what would you what would you not want to have in the pot? Um, and what would you call to make pop come soup? run to your? F- okay, well, <laughs> you got the right idea. When I used bisque in there, so that's a clue to uh, the first phrase. When Mama calls blank, bisque is a clue to that. 
well, bisque. Soup's on. There you go. Uh, soup's on. A soup's on? And soup's uh-huh. on. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> Change the S in the phrase soup's on to get the to a C to get soupçon. Soupçon nice. is a little something. A little something. And that C a has suspicion. a little sedilla right. coming off the bottom of it, right? That was a hoot. Great. Well, if you enjoy these puzzles, you can find more of them and more about the National Puzzlers League at www.puzzlers.org. Okay. Thanks, Greg. And if you'd like to talk about grammar, slang, punctuation, or words and how we use them, the number is 1-877-929-9673. That's 1-877-W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Or you can send an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, my name is Susan. I'm I'm normally in Madison, Wisconsin, but I'm calling from northern Wisconsin. I'm with my family on vacation, but I have a question for you. I'm a nursing student in Madison, Wisconsin, and I, uh, I've come across uh, an acronym that's uh, GTTS, and it means DRIPS. I'm wondering what the, uh, the history is behind GTTS. It means what? You know how in medical terminology they, um, there's PRN, um, which is like used for as needed or... Mm-hmm. NPO means nothing by mouth. Well, GTTS is used for drips when a medication is given um, as a, a, a drip. Oh, okay. Okay, right. So you're wondering if GTTS stands for, for get that titration started? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Very nice, Martha. Thank oh, you. oh, la, la. <laughs> All right. Thanks for calling. <laughs> Martha always likes to end on, on her being right. Uh. <laughs> is that really what it is? No, it's not, no. Martha. I wanted to uh, stop the call before I was proved wrong. I but... say, and I have to, yeah, and if I have to debunk this in the future, Martha, there, I'm going to show up on your doorstep <laughs> with some dictionaries. Grant hates debunking. And the thing is, she should know <laughs> yeah, better, Susan. It's because a derivative it, from Latin, right? That's exactly back. right. Get that titration started. It, no, it, is a, it does derive from Latin, but not from titration. Do you speak any French or Spanish? No, um, I have some French. All right. Do you, do you um, remember the word G-O-U-T-T-E? Now, that is Spanish for drop. Well, correct? it's gota French for is. drop, but exactly. Gota, G-O-T-A, is Spanish gota. for drop. But these two okay. words come from the same Latin word as the acronym that you gave us, the G-T-T-S. And the singular is guta, G-U-T-T-A. Martha, correct my pronunciation. No, I'm you're good. Wrong. You're and then the plural form is gute. And so, so what the GTTS is, it's a combination of the Latin word plus an S for the English plural. So the GTT is from the gute, and the S is the pluralized of it. And it just means it's exactly what you said. It means drips or drops. And occasionally, it has been assigned the exact measurement of 0.05 milliliters, but I don't think most places use that. And as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm seeing some evidence here that the GTTS acronym is kind of on the way out. I don't know that it's actually being formally taught. It is informally passed along, but I don't know that it's a formal part of anyone's education these days in the medical field. So, so Grant, in other words, it's a Latin word with a couple of letters knocked out and an S stuck on the end? Exactly right, yeah. They've knocked the vowels out, and they put an an English S on there to make it plural, and it means drops. (laughs) That's pretty weird, isn't it? Yeah. It's also sometimes abbreviated (laughs) as GT or just GTT. But you need you need those acronyms like the the PRN that Susan mentioned means uh, pro re nata P R O R E N A T A three mm-hmm. words and it means as the situation demands and I, I love the fact that that the medical profession still harkens back through its language to the days when everyone learned Latin as part of their medical training and and of course most doctors and nurses don't today do they No the, it's not part of the curriculum at all. So, Susan, good for you for digging beneath the surface. I wonder how many doctors know what that abbreviation means. I don't know. I've asked around. You have? I've asked several people, yeah, and no one's been able to explain to me where it came from. Hmm. Well, now you can tell them from the Latin word for drop. Excellent. Very cool. Cool. Thanks for calling, Susan. Great. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. The number to call is one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three, or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, my name is Tui Bowie. I'm calling from Fort Worth, Texas. I wanted to ask how to pronounce the Greek word G-Y-R-O. Oh, boy, you mean the sandwich. Yes. 
the, the meat on a pita with some yogurt sauce and cucumbers and tomatoes and onions, right? Yes, that's it. And how do you say it? Well, I, I used to say gyro, but um, I had a TA one time from, um, from Greece, and she said it was hero. And I've heard it been pronounced gyro and gyro, and I just really want to know. So the sandwich, G-Y-R-O. And, and there we start with the problems in the first place, Tui, which yeah. is uh, not everyone agrees that that's how you should spell it. Um, well, everybody agrees that's how you spell it. That's how you say it. It's, well, no, it's, in your world, they may agree how you spell it. What I'm saying is that the, the people who are, are, are steadfast in believing that the, the singular mm-hmm. form ends in an S and that to take that S off um, and to make a singular is, is incorrect. Because the word yeah. comes from Greek and it means turning, and it's in its eros to mean a, mean a turning. That's the Greek pronunciation, and it does have an s. And so you will get people, including some Greeks, and of course many Americans who believe this to be true, that that's the way to do it. But the whole problem with this whole thing is that um, nobody, as you say, knows how to pronounce the thing. Even Greek Americans, Greeks, Greeks themselves, who I've talked to, people who work in restaurants and serve this food, they give me different answers. I've been asking about this for years. <laughs> this is Seriously. why I always order the Spanakopita. <laughs> Forget the sandwiches. <laughs> that totally works. Um, and, and so here's the thing. In 1971, the New York Times ran an article about this sandwich. And notice I'm avoiding saying the word for the moment, right? The sandwich, mm-hmm. the G-Y-R-O. And in there, they wrote a phonetic pronunciation of the word. And they spelled it, all lowercase letters, Y-E-A-R hyphen O-H, Euro. And that's how they said it was pronounced. Now, um, the problem with that is, Twee, in 2009, the New York Times also wrote an article about the sandwiches. And they had a different pronunciation. (laughs) And they they spelled it capital Y, capital E, capital E, hyphen, lowercase r, lowercase o, lowercase s. Yiros. And so in this almost 40 years, in this 38 years between these two articles in the New York Times, something has happened. And I think what's happened here is that there's been kind of a a hyper-correction, as we call it. People have decided to try to hearken back to the original Greek in order to say, oh, this must be the authentic way to pronounce this word. And and that's – and you know what about that? You want to hear something about that? It's a load of hooey. (laughs) Seriously. And I'm going to get to your answer here. And you you just want to know how to pronounce this, right? There are four pronunciations given in the Oxford English Dictionary. If you ask, as you've done, and you've reported exactly what I found to be true, if you say to people, how do you pronounce this word? If they know that that's what you're after, they try to say it in the most authentic way they think it it could possibly be real. They they try to make it very foreign sounding or maybe what they imagine to be very Greek sounding, right, Martha? This is totally what they do. Oh, sure. But you know what? If, if you listen to them order the food in the restaurants, it's a completely the same people. It's a completely <laughs> different word in their mouths. And I've called people on it, and they deny that they pronounced it differently. I'm like, no, you you said something else the other day when we talked about this, and now when you've ordered the food, you say, you know, put here here's the thing. Here's the bottom line. One, most people say gyro or Giro. Mm-hmm. Two, the singular is unquestionably G-Y-R-O. And the reason is, is because this is an American food. I know it's no great feat to take meat and put it on bread, and, it, and it's mm-hmm. very much like a donor kebab, and people always bring that up. But this particular construction and this particular food by this particular name is American. Huh. So it's an American word. And I know Americans have a tendency to to brutalize, sometimes gently, but brutalize foreign words when they appear in our language. But um, uh-huh. this word is singular G-Y-R-O, gyro, gyro, however you want to say it. The plural, of course, is gyro, gyro, uh, gyros or gyros, however you want to say it. And then the fourth thing is yummy. I don't really care. Just give me some more tzatziki sauce and I'll, and I'll take whatever you got there. So it's good food. Anyway, so that's, well, you set me off here. <laughs> so so if I go to Greece, Grant, I'm not going to find these sandwiches? You'll f- you'll f- no, you'll find a, a different sandwiches. Sometimes, Even if you go down to the the Palaka, if you go to one of the places in Athens where the, they serve a lot of food to tourists, you're going to find food that looks like this, but it's not going to have this name. 
Thank you so much. Does I that finally work know for you? how to say it. <laughs> yes, yes. Next time somebody asks me, I will I will tell them that I was on a way with words and they told me how to say it correctly. That's right. Yes. Gyro or Giro, you're okay. All right. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 Well, if you want to weigh in on the gyro versus gyro versus heels, you can give us a call, 1-877-929-9673, or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. Have I ever said that you might? Never mind. Hello, <laughs> you have a way with words. Hello, this is Mike. Uh, I'm calling from Odessa, Texas, and I'm doing pretty good today. Thank you. What you thinking about? Well, I had a question for you here that I've been wondering about. I've heard different versions of it over the years, but my question is, what does the letter D in the phrase D-Day stand for? As in the Normandy invasion. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. June 6, 1944 was D-Day. We uh, invaded the beaches of Normandy to take back France and, and all of Europe from the Germans. Um, and your question is why there's a D in D-Day. Martha, what do you got there? Well, it's, it's pretty funny, isn't it? Because you think about D-Day and you don't really think about that D. Apparently, it simply means day. Is that the theory that you'd heard? Yes, ma'am. That it was like kind of like T minus, you know, as in a rocket countdown that originated as day minus 20 and so on, the countdown until the actual invasion. Exactly. Until Until you finally arrived at day minus, or day, day. You got it, Michael. That's exactly it. It seems that it's been used, oh, at least since World War I, and the D referred to the planned day of operation. So it was kind of a placeholder, I guess you'd say. Right, because you didn't want to name the date in full. First, you didn't want to do it every single time because that's kind of onerous. But also because you don't want to have the very important date in a thousand documents. So you just mark it with the D, right? Right. Yeah, so there's D-Day and also H-Hour, which is the hour that an operation is supposed to take place. And as you said, the same idea is there in the countdowns for the uh, rocket blast-offs when the, the T stands for time, T minus five seconds. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about D-Day is that it, it became such a proper noun after the 1944 invasion, but there are many other D-Days in military history uh, because it's a, it's still used today, although I think with less frequency. You you would you could call any kind of event that you're marking down on the calendar the D-Day that you're, you're counting up to or, or counting back from. Um, it's kind of the same thing that happened with Ground Zero, right. right? Ground Zero we now think of being this place in lower Manhattan where the two towers fell, and yet Ground Zero has long been a specific place uh, right above or below um, the site of an explosion, especially a nuclear one. So it's, 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 we still have, we have the formal proper noun D-Day, but we also have the informal common noun D-Day. Right. Well, I just heard so many different versions in a veteran told me that he was actually at Normandy, ah. and, and he, he explained it to me like that, and it made perfect sense, so mm-hmm. just wanted to confirm it. Well, Michael, thanks for an interesting question. You bet. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. If you've got a question about any kind of jargon, slang, lingo, something you heard, something you read, give us a call, one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three, or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. insights about language and how we use it. That's coming up next as Away With Words continues. Got a minute? We need your help. Head over to gum.fm slash words and share your thoughts in our quick survey. Your feedback matters. It's the backbone of our show's success. Thanks for making our show even more successful. That's gum.fm slash w-o-r-d-s. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. I was in Barcelona for the first time recently, and one of the great delights of that city, besides the wonderful food and the tapas bars, is the fact that you can't go very far in Barcelona without running into works by the great architect Antonio Gaudi. And I went to several buildings that he designed, but I couldn't visit more than one or two in a day because it's just too heady an experience. Grant, have you been there and seen them? Barcelona, Spain? No, no. High, High on the list, though. 
is just amazing. I mean, this guy's buildings are extremely playful, and they seem to defy all architectural rules. They even seem to defy gravity at times. And I'd walk into one of them, and sometimes I'd feel like I'd been swallowed by a giant sea creature or something. I mean, it gave you that much of a sense of hallucinating. Now, Gowdy was born in 1852, and he was a very sickly child. He had rheumatic fever. And so he spent a lot of his childhood near his house in this small village in Catalonia all by himself. And he would just closely study all the forms of nature, you know, flowers and shells and bugs and that kind of thing. And you see the results of this in his work. Well, when Gowdy graduated from architecture school, one of the officials there supposedly remarked, who knows if we've given this diploma to a nut or a genius? Time will tell. (laughs) And trust me, Grant, this guy is a genius. I mean, from the wavy exteriors of the buildings right down to the window latches. Everything's completely over the top. It's ornate. It just screams genius. It's, it's just like nothing I've ever seen. And of course, once I recovered from this incredibly heady visual experience, of course, Grant, I started thinking about language. And I remembered an email that we'd received a while back from a listener who asks, does our word gaudy, that's G-A-U-D-Y, mm-hmm. come from the name of the architect Gaudi? Of course, gaudy means extravagantly tasteless or showy, and you might think that there was a connection. And I admit I had to go double-check, and it turns out that the short answer is... Ixnay. Mm, Ixnay. They're not connected. Gaudy, meaning showy, goes all the way back to the late 15th century. And it may come from an earlier word, gaud, G-A-U-D, which means a showy or purely ornamental object. And both of those words may go all the way back to the Latin gaudere, which means to rejoice. You know, like that song, gaudi almusigatur, which is, which is <laughs> <laughs> let's rejoice, therefore. So the bottom line is that uh, the word gaudy was around for centuries before Antonio Gaudi ever came on the scene. But it's easy to see why somebody might guess a connection. And Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I want to say about all this is that if you haven't seen Gaudi's work up close and personal, by all means, put it on your do-yourself-a-favor list. All right. To my bucket list of ghosts. Thanks, Martha. (laughs) That's right. Your bucket (laughs) list. (laughs) Well, if you have a question about language, call us 1-877-929-9673 or email us. That address is words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Uh, This is Jan, and I'm calling from Carmel, Indiana. Well, Jan, welcome to the program. Hi, Jan. Thank you. Um, I have a question about a word uh, that I heard in the context of uh, large storms when I was growing up. Uh, um, My mother used to say, well, this one's going to be a real blinger. So the word is blinger. Uh-huh. And what did she mean by that? Uh, she meant that it was something out of the ordinary. Usually it meant it was, it was going to be a grand event, uh, a lot of winds. Uh, it usually came up quickly and unexpected. Um, and it was used very infrequently. It was only, it was only uh, you know, for special, special weather conditions. Uh-huh. Blinger. And so it's spelled like finger, but with B-L? It's, uh, yeah, B, you're right. Exactly. And so what's your question about it? I just wondered if you knew if that word existed or uh, the origin of it, and and I was wondering if it had a regional uh, existence or something like that. Uh Uh-huh, or maybe just your family used it, huh? Right. When was your mother born, do you know? Uh, My mother was born in in 1920, and uh, her parents had immigrated from England. Mm -hmm. And uh, they lived, originally they lived in Canada, uh, near Hessler, and then they emigrated over to Detroit. So that's mm. where I grew up, was in Detroit. Well, I love this word, don't you? <laughs> it's great. It's, it's really, it's, a, it's been a curiosity with me for years, and, and my mother is gone now, so I can't question her about it, but mm-hmm. uh, it's got a lot of descriptive quality to it. Yeah, it's a blinger of a word, right? That's right. Yeah, well, you'd be happy to know that it is a word, and and you're right that you don't see it in most dictionaries, but you will find it every once in a while. It's in the Dictionary of American Regional English, for example. Ah, okay. And it's used mostly in the Northeast, according to that dictionary, and it means, as you said, an extreme or outstanding example of its kind. 
Like uh. there's, a, there's one citation in this dictionary from 1949 that says it's uh, talking about people who caught colds, and it says 179 of them developed real blingers. Okay, okay, so it's something out of the ordinary then again. Yeah, exactly, something that's, that's really outstanding. It goes back uh, much further than that. I've seen it back as far as 1897, talking about a, a good-looking girl. Wow. Yeah, the quote there is, a blinger, a stunner, the handsomest girl I ever set eyes on. That's a, <laughs> she must be something, well, that's, huh? <laughs> that's, really, that's, that's really interesting. I'm glad that you guys are, are able to uh, identify this, uh, because every time I try to search it on the Internet, it gets muddled up with all the word that bling means now, you know. The, right. Ah, right. The, the right. newer meaning, and that, that pops up, and, and I can't find any reference to it. Right. Yeah, there's no, there's no connection between bling-bling, as in the, the hip-hop term, and this blinger. Right. No, no, they're totally different. Okay, well, I'm, I'm just tickled to death that you guys knew. I, I kind of thought that you would be the source. <laughs> we are a blinger of a well, source. Come on. And, if, and when we're not the source, we know where to check. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Thank you so much for giving us a call, Jan. Okay, well, thank you for taking my call. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, if you have a family word or phrase that you're curious about, give us a call. The number is 1-877-929-9673, or send those emails to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Howdy. This is John in Bremerton, Washington. Well, hiya, John. Welcome to the program. Howdy. Howdy, Martha. Good to have you here. What's up? Well, I was wondering what the meaning of one-off is and where it came from. Well, now, John, how would you use that in a sentence? Well, let, let me give you my, my spiel of it. Okay. Okay. When I turned 60 during the millennium, uh, I purchased my first PC and went online for the first time. And soon after, I was asked to help moderate a forum uh, on a Lord of the Rings website. It originates out of Great Britain. And one day a member violated our family-friendly policy, and the then owner banned him for life. And I didn't think that violation was flagrant enough to receive such a harsh penalty, and I questioned it. And the owner said it was one-off and told me to drop the subject, which I did. Hmm. And I don't remember hearing the term one-off before. And at the time, I thought maybe it was mispronounced or misspelled or shortened slang for one of a kind. Uh-huh. But the word really was off. Since then, I've heard it innumerable times on the radio and TV. Uh-huh. So, John, it's always implying something like one of a kind, right? Yeah. Or something that happens just once? Yeah, unique. What was one of a kind here? Was it the banning that was one of a kind, or was it the original violation that was one of a kind? I think it was the banning. Uh-huh. And you say that the person who was using that expression was British? Yes. Well, that's interesting, isn't it, Grant? Yeah, that makes some sense. Yeah. It's apparently a term that originated in Britain, although we hear it lots more nowadays in this country. And, John, it appears to have come from manufacturing and from the idea that uh, in manufacturing, at least since uh, the 1930s or so, people would use off with a preceding number to represent a quantity of things to be produced. So like I might say to you, John, here's a mold. I need you to produce 50 units off. Or I need you to recalibrate the machine after 500 units off. But wouldn't it be more like um, this is a 500 off unit or a 500 off run or a 500 off um, order, right? The off is usually attached to the number, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, 600 off or, or 60 off, right. that, that kind of thing. And, and the idea, I think, may go back to a mold, right? Right. And okay, so, so it would be off the mold. Right, right. So if it's a one-off, it's sort of like they broke the mold. That makes sense. But, you know, the, uh, the interesting thing here, uh, I, I never knew this was British until people started asking about it. I had no idea because this has been in my vocabulary for ages, and I, I think it comes from reading a lot of British literature or listening to a lot of the BBC. So, John, now you know. Now I know. I thank you. Well, you're certainly welcome. And so this Lord of the Rings forum, are you still active in that? Yeah. I'm yeah, that's pretty still interesting. still moderating it. You're still moderating? Which one is it? It's planettolkien.com. Planet Tolkien. Oh, yeah. So you're a big Tolkien head then, huh? Yep. <laughs> John, it was great to talk to you. I'm going to look up that forum and have me some fun. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.
You know, Grant, I do get this question a lot. In fact, I got this question just this morning in my email box. A guy named Dave wrote to say that he started seeing the phrase one-off used in motorcycle magazines referring to a custom-made part. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, that's why that's why the usage on the Tolkien forum was so weird. It, it still usually refers to a thing that's made rather than an event that happened. Yeah. But, but well, I mean, you still can get that. You know, this is a, a one-off, uh, you know, you 2 played a secret show. It was a one-off. It wasn't a part of a tour. Well, if you've got a question about something you heard that didn't sound normal to you, give us a call, one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. You can send us an email to words at waywardradio.org, and you can find out all about us and the show at waywardradio.org, which is our website. talking about reference books earlier in the program, the ones that we would recommend to somebody to buy for a student or a child or for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking sometimes we get a little stuck in our ways, meaning we like to think of ourselves as being currently up to date with all the lang- latest language information. And really what we're doing kind of is seeking out information that already supports our points of view, right? <laughs> I mean, All right, to, busted. To be, right, we do that. We do. If somebody says, you know, what's the deal with hopefully or what's the deal with ir- irregardless, we've got some pat set answers. Mm-hmm. And they tend to conform to the same kind of points of view every time. So I was thinking one of the ways in which I try to balance this out, I buy multiple dictionaries or use multiple dictionaries for one thing. So I'm getting different perspectives because they're not the same. Dictionaries are not interchangeable. But the other way that I do this is to find some opposition. I mean, you do that for me, right? You and I kind of oppose each other and provide alternate points of view. But the yes. other way that I do that is with Brian Garner's Modern American Usage. Uh-huh. He, and he has just released a third edition of this great book. And now the reason that he's my opposition is he's a highly conservative usage expert. That's not a political opinion. That's a, a professional opinion. He's about keeping language more or less in a stable form so that it doesn't change too rapidly and that communication is increased because we're we're not taking liberties with the way we express ourselves. And he, of course, in his book, gives short shrift to slang and dialect and informal speech in general. And I think that's a mistake. But you know what? You've heard me cite him again and again on this program. It's because I know that I can trust Brian Garner to be consistent. Mm-hmm. I know that I can right. trust him to right. to back up what he's talking about. He's not talking out of his hand. I mean, here's the man who is also the editor of Black's Law Dictionary. He understands subtlety. He understands getting to the bottom of something with evidence and proving it. And so when he has an opinion, even though maybe I think he's considered the wrong evidence or maybe I think he's ill-considered the evidence, he at least has got some kind of substantiation behind it. And so I've got this brand new pristine copy of the third edition of Brian Garner's Modern American Usage, and it's fantastic. It really is stupendous. And not because he agrees with me. There's something on every page <laughs> that I'm like, well, now that, that, that's not true or that's wrong. But that's, that's beside the point. He's not a self-appointed expert. He is an expert. Mm-hmm. Um, so in any case, I was just saying, thinking along those lines and thinking, when people ask me, what do I recommend as far as usage goes? Brian Garner's Modern American Usage is one of those books that I recommend. It's, it's, it's great. And that's the third edition, right? That's right. I have to check it out. Well, if you have a question about language, give us a call. The number is one 929 or send us an email. That address is words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, my name is David, and I live in Arcata, California. Ah, oh, welcome, David. Yes, my question relates to a peculiar use of the word lens. Uh, through the years working as an ophthalmologist, I've encountered maybe a handful of patients who use the word lens as if it's plural, the singular of which is lens. For example, they might say, my lens are scratched, but... The right limb is not as scratched as the left limb. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, these are usually um, patients over 60 years of age, uh, often with strong southern accents. Hmm. So I'm wondering, are there parts of the southern U.S. where this usage is current today? Oh, what an interesting question. So so they use lens like they would say, I dropped my contact lens? Yes, they might say that. I ha- I don't think I've heard it in connection with the contact, but it's usually a spectacle lens. Oh, okay, okay. And so what is the plural? The plural is lens. Oh, lens. So so one <laughs> lens, two lens? 
Correct. Okay, so they and they don't order contact lenses. Then. No, they would order contact lens. How interesting! Hmm. That's pretty. That's pretty cool. You're encountering these southern speakers in Arcata, California. Yes. Hmm. Not, you know, it's it's been uh, a handful of patients in more than thirty years. But, oh, I see. Uh, okay. Yeah, it, it's it's a definite pattern in, in in a certain population, apparently. Yeah, we've encountered this in a few other words in English. Uh, we've seen this, for example, in the word K-U-D-O-S, which many English speakers took to be a plural, but actually mm. started out as a singular, and people decided uh-huh. that it was kudos was was more than one kudo. Uh-huh. And right. actually, that is pretty much right. the standard yeah. usage these days anyway. So that one has made the full transformation. I don't know that I've ever encountered the... Singular word lens being taken as a plural before, but that's a very nice little data point there. Where else have we seen that, Martha? Well, I was going to say, David, you're an ophthalmologist, is that right? Right. And so as a medical person, I mean, you must be familiar with bicep, right? Uh, oh, yes. there we go. Yeah. David, feel my bicep. but but Oh, yes, the, it's been singularized. Right, right. The word right. is biceps, and it lost that right. uh, S because it, it's sort of misunderstood as uh-huh. a plural. Yeah, same phenomenon. So in reality, biceps is both plural and singular, right? Uh, yeah, In the I strictest so. usage. So I have right. two biceps and I have a biceps on my left arm. Yeah. Honestly, I haven't heard that phenomenon before with that particular word lens. I'm going to start listening for it. But you can see how it would happen. Yeah, it's called a back formation. When people look at a word and decide to analyze it differently than mm-hmm. is normal and decide that, for example, that it's a conjugated form or that it's a plural form when it isn't either of those things. I see. And they, okay, so they infer something that's not true. Yeah. <clears throat> well, thank you for sharing that with us. It's a definitely a known phenomenon. It's interesting to hear it. And if you come across some more examples, I'd I'd love to know where exactly these folks are from and see if we can pin some kind of regional information to this. Well, thank you for uh, taking the call. Okay. Thank sure you for thing. calling. Bye bye. Bye bye. If you've noticed something in the speech of other people and you've got questions about it, give us a call, one eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three, and you can send all your questions about slang and jargon, new words and old words, to words at waywardradio.org. That's our show for this week. If you didn't get on the air today, you can leave us a message anytime. The number is one 929 9673 Or email us. The address is words at waywardradio.org. Or drop by Away With Words online. You can chat with fellow word lovers by going to waywardradio.org slash discussion. Stephanie Levine is our senior producer. Our technical director and editor is Tim Felton. Tim also engineered our theme music. Kurt Conan produced it. We've had production help this week from Josette Herdell and Jennifer Powell. From Studio West in San Diego, I'm Martha Barnett. And from San Francisco, I'm Grant Barrett. Thanks to Paul Lancor for engineering our show from the studios of KQED Radio. Arrivederci. Bye-bye. Oh, if we call the whole thing off, then we must part. And oh, if we ever part, that would break my heart. So I say oyster, you say oyster. I'm not gonna stop eating oysters just cause you say oysters. Let's call the whole